are back. At the top of segment three, we like to do uh, worthy obituaries, and we think the obituary of Mr. Ed Yost deserves comment. Mr. Yost was born in Bristol, Iowa in 1919. He graduated from the Boeing School of Aeronautics in Oakland, California, where he was a serious aerospace researcher. He joined the Army in World War II as a civilian employee and worked on balloon technology. During the Cold War, he assisted the CIA in designing balloons to drop propaganda behind the Iron Curtain. So effective were Yost's high-altitude balloons that they traveled far beyond East Germany into much of the communist bloc. As Yost later put it, the thing worked too damn good, and we got the Hungarian Revolution. In 1959, Yost set up his own aviation research company, Raven Industries, that began exploring amateur ballooning. The major challenge was the lifting gas. Heating air with an open fire was too dangerous. The sparks from the fuel tended to spread to the balloon material. Hydrogen was just downright explosive, and helium, though safe, was too expensive. Propane, however, would cost a tiny fraction of the amount and just might work. So it was that in 1960, on a farm in Nebraska, Ed Yost strapped himself into what looked like a lawn chair attached to two propane tanks and a 40-foot-wide orange-stripe nylon bag. He ignited the tanks, heated 3,000 cubic feet of air, and uh, with a fan, forced the buoyant gas into the nylon envelope. The device slowly rose, and before long, Yost was 500 feet above the ground. His flight lasted 25 minutes and covered only three miles, but it's noted that Yost had inaugurated the modern era of ballooning. His innovative design allowed amateurs to enjoy the sport and for professionals to embark on journeys of previously unheard of distances and endurance. So if you've ever taken a hot air balloon ride, and if you haven't, I recommend that you do so. You owe a certain debt of thanks to Mr. Ed Yost, who we salute today on Radio Parallax. All right, joining us now on the program is Stuart Wexler. Mr. Wexler is a history teacher and a researcher into the matter of what happened to President John Kennedy back in 1963. Two weeks ago on this program, we spoke with Vincent Bugliosi about his, uh, his belief that he has solved the entire case. And joining us to round out that picture is Stu Wexler. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Stu. Hi, Doug. How you doing? Doing all right. Uh, people, I think, noticed the headlines a few weeks back that said, Fatal JFK Bullet Evidence Challenged. And uh, you actually played an integral part in, in that challenge, and why don't you talk about that and, and what the findings were? Uh, well, essentially, for the past five to six years or so, I've been looking into um, a test that was done in the late 1970s that um, aimed to show, and based on the interpretation um, by the lead scientist, purported to show that there were two and only two bullets fired on November 22nd. Um, that all of the, that material came from two rounds that were traceable to, ultimately, to Lee Harvey Oswald's weapon. Um, and it also uh, provided important uh, corroboration for the, the so-called single bullet theory. This was neutron activation analysis. Yeah, well, neutron activation analysis refers to the chemical technique that was used. Um, the, the science is called comparative bullet-lead analysis. And it's become a very sort of hot topic in the forensic science community the last four or five years. Coincidentally, at the same time I was looking into the test, the use of it for the Kennedy assassination, it's been 
a hotly pursued matter. And essentially what, what had happened was uh, eventually a bunch of reports that denigrated the evidence or denigrated the, the application of the technique um, culminated in the National Academy of Sciences coming out and saying that the entire technique is not very probative um, in forensic science or in a court of law. And what I did was I contacted one of the lead scientists, or really the lead statistician for the National Academy of Sciences, and I asked him if he would be interested in looking at specifically the Kennedy assassination case. Um, and then together, really, he played the lead in getting four or five other scientists on board, a chemist, a metallurgist, and we took um, a look at the specific brand of ammunition that was alleged to have been used in the assassination. And what we concluded was that things were inconclusive, which in looked at from the point of view of what was said in 1978, um, that test has been used as one of the major pillars of what you would call the lone assassin theory, the theory that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. And what we said was, the test itself doesn't actually favor either side. That viewed correctly, interpreted correctly, the results from 1978 don't support either view, lone assassin or conspiracy. Right. But it's inconclusive. Statistically, you cannot tie all those bullet fragments to two bullets, but neither can you say that there was more than one gun. Correct. You, you right. can't say based on the bullet lead, the chemical analysis of the bullet lead alone, of the fragments that were supposed to have been recovered from Dealey Plaza and from the president and from Governor Connolly, you can't say based on that alone whether there was one bullet fired, two bullets fired, three bullets fired, four bullets fired. Um, it's, it's inconclusive evidence. Well, Stu, I know that by the time Boldiosi's book hit the stands and by the time we interviewed him, uh, he sort of changed his tune about saying this is very important data to then saying, well, it's not so important. Uh, did you notice that? Well, what was interesting about um, Vince Bugliosi's book is I think he has a little bit of a different idea about what inconclusive means. <laughs> um, in his book, he presents only in a footnote, mind you, a contrary point of view. There's no, no respectable scientist who doesn't have an axe to grind will look at this evidence and say that there are two and only two bullets. Nobody will do that. All right. Well, Stu, I know you've had a chance to look at the book, and you've had a chance to listen to our interview with Mr. Bugliosi. As a researcher into the matter, would you say that you still think the case remains open? Very much so. He takes on a very narrow, straw man version of what a conspiracy is. Um, he ignores many of the sort of quiet researchers who do their work without fanfare, and who presented theories that he hasn't tackled. So his idea that he took on every single theory is absurd. Well, Stu Wexner, we thank you for speaking with us, and good work in getting that statistical analysis out there. We think it was, uh, I think it was probably long overdue. Thank you very much, Doug. You have a good one. Once again, that was Stu Wexler, who called us from uh, New Jersey. He has been a longtime researcher into the matter of uh, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. We need to talk a bit, I think, about uh, the big story from the Lake Tahoe area, one of the worst wildfires up in the area in many, many years. It's being called the Angora Fire and involves the region between Fallen Leaf Lake and the familiar South Lake Tahoe Y on Highway 89. 
By Tuesday, firefighters were optimistic that the uh, blaze would be controlled by Sunday, but unfortunately, when winds of 40 miles an hour kicked up, the inferno raged anew, and estimates now will not be controlled until next week. UC Davis has been involved in the past in investigating uh, how best to suppress fires. Uh, one such study was called the Tea Kettle Experiment, conducted down near the Fresno region, concluded in 2005. It showed that fire suppression is the practice most damaging to a forest's future health. Joining us now to talk about human habitation in areas subject to occasional wildfires is Dr. Malcolm North, Associate Professor of Forest Ecology and a research scientist in plant ecology employed by the U.S. Forest Service. Dr. Malcolm North, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell us a bit about uh, what was learned from this tea kettle experiment conducted down the Fresno area. Well, we were really looking at this whole issue of uh, health, basically. The term is often coined forest health in terms of trying to restore forests to a condition in which they used to be when they had more frequent fire burning in them. And um, so a, a team of scientists that uh, I was heading up looked at this issue collectively with a, a number of people looking at different parts of the ecosystem and how it responded. But the, the basic take-home message was is that fire was really the essential part um, needed to be able to restore most of the functions and processes within the forest, um, at least the forest that we were looking at. We've often heard it said that because we don't let lightning strikes burn that uh, ultimately we get in quite a lot more trouble. You concur? Well, there, we've definitely gotten ourselves in, on the, in a, into quite a hole by suppressing fires for the last 50, 60 years, at least effectively suppressing them for that period of time. And then when they do burn now, there's such a high fuel load that um, they're very difficult to control. But probably most importantly, they've really changed fundamentally in their character from being a, f a fire that used to burn mostly along the surface of the, of the forest and clean out the litter and the slash and the fuels. And now it's much more typical for the fire to actually burn through the tree crowns. And when that happens, it usually kills almost all the trees within the stand and pretty much dramatically changes the forest um, environment, often eliminating all of the trees, all the forest to begin with, so that you're starting again back at scratch. Um, and that's pretty uncharacteristic for what these forests used to do historically. Yeah, I saw some footage in the news of these flames. People were describing flames at the, at the treetop level. It just sounds like a terrifying, uh, terrifying spectacle. Yeah, once the flames actually get within the treetops, um, particularly if there's some wind, they can move faster than people can run, and it makes, a, it makes for a very dangerous situation. So the, the priority often with fighting forest fires is to be able to try to keep them on the ground, because once they're in the treetops, you really don't have too much control over them anymore. What sort of time frame do you expect uh, in the wake of the burn that took place here in the Angora Fire for something to restore itself? It's potentially a long period of time. Um, there will be pockets where probably the fire burned along the surface of the, of the forest, and those actually will come back and revegetate with, with greenery and shrubs probably within a year or two, and, and, and uh, those areas may actually improve in terms of their ecological functions from what we, from what we believe they should be. Uh, historically, but the the large part of the areas that burn intensely, where all the trees die, where the fire moves through the the forest canopy, 
those can take a long time to come back. And um, depending on how far away the seed source is or whether the trees are planted in that area, you're probably looking at at least, uh, you know, 15 to 30 years to get any real good tree cover on the area. And, of course, you won't have large, uh, big trees for, you know, 100 or more years in the area. Well, Dr. North, we appreciate your speaking with us. I know this this fire is still being fought. Uh, could you come back in a couple of weeks when it's all said and done and see what we might, uh, what the final conclusions and lessons we might learn from this would be? I'd be happy to, and I, my thoughts are with the people up there. I hope that the fire gets uh, contained soon. Dr. Malcolm North, Associate Professor of Forest Ecology and a research scientist in plant ecology employed by the U.S. Forest Service. Thank you. All right, let's close the show with just some miscellaneous items. There's been some publicity about a professional wrestler who a few days back evidently uh, killed his wife, his son, and then himself. There's been speculation uh, being that uh, illegal steroids were found in the home that this may have contributed to the tragedy. Somewhat disgustingly, uh, professional wrestling uh, authorities, I guess Vince McMahon and others, have uh, have noted their concern with, quote, sensationalistic reporting, unquote, about the steroid discovery. They noted that the physical findings indicate deliberation, not rage. Well, from a medical standpoint, I'm here to tell you that people who are abusing steroids uh, can often undergo uh, personality changes and become very aggressive and very, uh, well, prone to emotional outbursts. I personally have had to take patients off of steroids who are getting a little bit wacky, and uh, I don't know whether this contributed to this tragedy here, but it's certainly worth looking at, and another reason to be very cautious about, uh, about the use of uh, performance-enhancing steroids. You know, by the way, we need to note a correction to a last week's program wherein we noted that uh, apparently you'd have to have hands-free uh, cell phones in your car as of July 1st of this year. No, no, no. That was uh, an erroneous email sent to us by Bruce in L.A. who has apologized and sent us a correction which notes that that law does not go into effect until July of 2008. And speaking of misinformation and, and perhaps disinformation, it's been noted that uh, Dow Jones and Company and the News Corp, owned by Rupert Murdoch, uh, apparently appear to be uh, clearing away hurdles toward a, uh, a deal wherein uh, the evil mastermind of Fox News will uh, you know, gain even more control over the U.S. media. Not that you could expect to see a change in the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal, which I think is, you know, vied with, uh, with Fox for seeing who could move, to the, move furthest to the right. But if that wasn't enough to worry about, uh, the B News Service reported uh, last week that uh, Yahoo is also talking to Murdoch, who's been discussing a deal to swap his MySpace social networking site with Yahoo for a one-quarter stake in the troubled Internet icon. Why don't we just turn the whole world media over to Rupert Murdoch? Writing in The Guardian of London, Polly Toynbee, remarking on the passing of Tony Blair, noted that uh, Blair's chief failing was that he did nothing to limit the domination of Rupert Murdoch. Had he been brave, said Miss Toynbee, he could have restored media ownership rules to pre-Thatcher days. It was Margaret Thatcher's administration that swept away all regulation and allowed Murdoch to swallow more than 40% of the newspaper ownership in the UK, while also expanding his television presence. Continued the article, 
Murdoch has abused his power ever since, almost single-handedly setting the news agenda and forcing the government on the defensive. Which might go a long way toward explaining uh, Tony Blair's backing of, uh, of W on uh, this fiasco over in Iraq. And speaking of that, we do, uh, we do share the puzzlement uh, of the Chicago Tribune, who noted a couple weeks back that when, uh, when Cindy Sheehan announced that she was calling it quits and expressed deep disappointment in the anti-war movement, um, you do have to wonder why we don't see more protest. Public disgust with Iraq is at an all-time high, yet the streets and campuses of this nation appear largely quiet. Speculated Rex Hupke in the Tribune, perhaps the biggest factor may be the Internet. Instead of gathering in smoky coffee houses or in massive rallies in the street, today's activists fire off emails or update their blogs. Blogs may reach a lot of people, but they siphon away energy and indignation into angry words instead of action visible to all. Speculated Hupke, it may be counterintuitive, but the vastly improved communication networks of the modern age may actually be taking a bit of oomph out of political activism. Uh, to that we say, well, we hope not. We've got about two minutes left, so let's close with some good news from the field of technology. This month's popular science magazine notes that the U.S. churns out 9 billion clay bricks a year, and every one of them is an expensive environmental nightmare. They require costly mining, and they bake in 2,000-degree kilns that guzzle fuel and spit out pollutants. This prompted Henry Liu, age 70, a retired civil engineer, to try and build a better brick. Liu took $600,000 from the National Science Foundation and took some waste product from coal power plants, fly ash, stuff that would otherwise fester in a landfill, and uh, find a way to use hydraulic presses and a little bit of water to mold together some bricks, put them in a, a basically a steam bath of 150 degrees for a couple of weeks, or he will later discover just one day in that steam bath, and this mixture would set into blocks which are as strong as concrete, yet because they're molded, they're smoother and more uniform, which slashes bricklaying time and labor. The article notes that concrete sticks together because of cement, uh, calcium oxide in, in the compounds, which binds the surrounding materials of crushed rock. And apparently this fly ash uh, contains calcium oxide levels of between 20 and 30 percent, making it self-cementing in nature. Now, uh, federal safety standards uh, require that bricks can survive 50 cycles of freezing and thawing, and by experimenting with this product, Mr. Liu has now developed uh, bricks that stand up. He aims to license the bricks to manufacturers next year. Said uh, a brick manufacturer, the people who buy bricks will definitely be interested, but I don't see the brick companies liking it at all. Exciting stuff. We're out of time. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Our thanks go to our guests today, Stuart Wexler, Dr. Malcolm North, and Professor Alfred W. McCoy. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We'll see you next week at the same time. Thanks for listening.